Hey, howdy, space nerds. Thanks for tuning in each week as we explore space exploration. And don't let the conversation stop when you reach the end of this episode. Let's keep chatting online. We've launched a new Facebook page to host discussions and share the latest space news. Find us by searching Are We There Yet? podcast or visiting facebook.com slash Mars. I'll see you there. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. On May 10th, a panel of three scientists and engineers joined me in front of a live audience here at the station to answer one simple question. How do you survive on Mars? Well, we talked about in-situ resource utilization, like farming both in space and on the Martian surface, as well as turning trash into carbon dioxide that can later be used as fuel and water. The conversation took a turn to the philosophical as we discussed the actual reasons to go to Mars and what's possibly stopping from going now. Well, I'm going to share that conversation with you during this episode, but I want to give you a heads up. It's a bit longer than the usual podcast episodes are, but I think it's an enjoyable and very insightful conversation well worthy of the time. I'll also continue to monitor the hashtag we used, hashtag MarsTalk, for the next few weeks and see if I can get your questions answered from our experts. You can also join this conversation on Facebook. All right, here you go. I present to you, Are We There Yet's first live panel discussion, How to Survive on Mars. When the first Martians arrive on the red planet, not much awaits them. There's no food, no breathable air, no fuel. All they'll have is what's brought with them. That's not much. That's why researchers and engineers are developing the technology that will take what's on Mars and turn it into the much-needed food, water, and life-saving oxygen. So how do you do that? How do you use the resources around you to survive? And what about the trip there? How will astronauts sustain themselves on the months-long journey to Mars? Well, we're going to ask all of those questions in the next hour with our panel of scientists and engineers, and we'll answer your questions at the end of the conversation, but you can get your questions in now. Go ahead and tweet them using the hashtag MarsTalk. Now, joining me on stage is NASA's Nicole DeFore. She's the project manager of Veggie, a garden of vegetables on the International Space Station. Astronauts are growing lettuce and cabbage, thanks to Nicole and her team, and they're learning vital lessons in plant growth and microgravity. Also from NASA, Annie Meyer. She's a chemical engineer, transforming trash into vital gases like oxygen and water. Her trash gas technology can be used to recycle dinner scraps, wrappers, packaging, even poop, into gases that can be used for life support on long-duration <laughs> missions. <laughs> Glad some thought that's not your intro, right, Dan? <laughs> and he also <laughs> tested the tech on NASA's high-sea mission, a mission on a, a simulated mission on a Martian base camp. And finally, from Florida Institute of Technology, Dan Bachelador. Dan is the head of physics department at Florida Tech and works with NASA to develop dirt that is similar to Martian regolith. His team of researchers are trying to grow plants in the Mars simulant, working closely with scientists and engineers at NASA Kennedy Space Center. Join me in giving a warm welcome to our panelists this evening. Thank you all for coming. Dan, I want to start with you. Mars is a really rough place to visit, right? Can you kind of paint us a picture of, of what's actually on the surface of Mars? Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and, and just before we start, I just want to thank you, Brendan, for in, inviting us here. The, these types of conversations are absolutely essential, especially when you consider where we are in the world. You know, this, this part of Florida, central Florida, is the place for space. And we need to get everybody in the local community to make sure that not only the rest of the state realizes this, the rest of the nation realizes this, but the rest of the world realizes this. Now, getting back to your question, what is it like on Mars? Well, it's deadly. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, 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 Optimistic, Dan. Yeah, well, you know, uh, there's a reason why we haven't gone there yet. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, and uh, the best way to imagine it is to take the harshest desert that we have on Earth, which you can argue about which one it was. My favorite is the Atacama Desert. But actually put it at an altitude of 30 miles. Uh, that is about six times higher than uh, Mount Everest. Uh, up there, um, the uh, pressure of uh, the atmosphere is 1% of what you are currently enjoying. Um, there is um, not much atmosphere to protect you from uh, the UV radiation that comes from the sun. Uh, Mars doesn't have a protective magnetic field like we uh, are currently enjoying on Earth, and so the cosmic rays are also uh, potentially a problem. There's a lot more radiation up there. Um, the average temperature on Mars is minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and so these are the types of challenges that we have to overcome in order to support a crew on the surface for hopefully um, an extended, if not permanent, amount of time. And what are some of those absolute things that, that those astronauts are going to need when they first get to the surface of Mars? Well, considering the environment, I think it's pretty obvious that the, the absolute essential thing is some kind of habitat. Uh, you can't just wander around on Mars indefinitely. And those, those types of habitats, that you can have some incredibly interesting conversations about habitats just by themselves. And there, there are conferences just about the types of habitats that could be uh, on Mars. And they could be artificial, brought along by uh, the types of spacecraft that are being developed both by the federal and the private sector. But they could also be natural as well. So uh, we know that Mars has been um, volcanically active in the past. So we expect there to be lava tubes and caves on the surface of Mars. So uh, those types of habitats are going to be the uh, starting place. But it's also important to realize that Mars is actually not that dissimilar from Earth. If you think about the way Mars would have formed, it formed at the same time as the Earth, from the same material as the Earth, about the same distance from the sun as the Earth. So it shouldn't be uh, any surprise to realize that, uh, to find out that the actual surface of the planet itself contains the same types of materials that we find here on Earth, including water. And so, uh, as well as the habitat, uh, once you've got that figured out, there should be all of the stuff there on the surface of Mars needed to support a colony if we can develop that technology, except for the food. And so the food, I think, is where uh, really it comes down to uh, the, uh, the, the, the most amount of research has to start with the food. And that's a good transition because, Nicole, you've been working on food in space, right? Not on the surface of Mars, but on the long journey. Now, Dan, before we transition there, how long would it take for us to get to, to Mars? That depends how much money you want to spend. Um, you have unlimited money. Unlimited money, you could probably do it in about 100 days. And that's what Elon Musk uh, presented at uh, one of the conferences recently where he put up his his fabulous spaceship, uh, he, was, he, he was thinking about the, on the order of 100 days. And that's where you, you have an extended period of acceleration on the spacecraft. You expend an awful lot of energy and money to get the delta V required quickly to make a, a very fast transition. And there, there is a trade-off there between the amount of time somebody spends in transit mm-hmm. um, and the amount of physical damage they could actually experience whilst in transit. So there, there is an argument for uh, getting there as quickly as possible. So that could be 100 days on, on the order of three months. Uh, you could take six months in uh, what's known as a, a, conjun- uh, a conjunction transfer orbit, or you could take the least, the cheapest way, uh, which is typically the way that's chosen for um, the, the congressional right way, now. Right? The, yeah, which is called a, a Holman transfer orbit, which is basically uh, <laughs> using the, uh, as much orbital angular momentum of the, of the two planets as possible, um, and essentially uh, waiting for the planets to be um, in a position where they're aligned to opposite sides of the sun. Yeah. Now, even at, at its quickest speed, at, at 100 days, that's quite a bit of time to spend in space. Now, Nicole, you're working on an experiment in space right now with astronauts that do spend a lot of time in space, astronauts in the International Space Station. 
Tell us about Veggie. What is the Veggie Experiment, and what are you learning from it? So the Veggie Experiment is a pretty simple idea. You take lights to grow plants and close the volume of the plant growth area and use the actual environmental controls that the space station already has in place to optimize your humidity and CO2. It's, it's very low power. It's about 70 watts, which is, is any of you power buffs now, might, is not a lot. Um, and it uses, what does your phone use? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> a lot more than 70 watts. <laughs> there you go. It's a light bulb. Yeah, it's basically not, not really anymore, but it used to be a light bulb. Um, and it, it just it circulates the air from space station through the plant growth volume and uses passive water transfer instead of powered pumps to feed the plants. So what is passive water transfer? Using no power. Okay. Using capillary action. Okay. And, and the absence of gravity to water the plants. So what are, what are we learning about growing plants in a microgravity environment then? We are learning that the water management is more challenging than you would think. Okay. Um, that has been our biggest challenge with the veggie plant growth. And as, as we journey into new crops and test out new new things. We, we learn about um, how different crops uh, respond to higher CO2, elevated CO2 environments, which we didn't expect. Plants need CO2 to grow. You would think they would flourish well in a high CO2 environment like the International Space Station. But we're learning that there are additional challenges that we would not have anticipated along the way. Now, the one thing about working in a, in a microgravity environment is you're kind of, you're floating around. There is really no up or down or left or right so how do these plants know to grow straight up, right? They've they got to be confused up there. They, they are, and, and that's why we use the LEDs and different color variations. The blue light allows them to detect the direction of which way they should grow, which way is up, and, and helps them orient themselves. So what does it take? How long does it take to... What are we looking at here? What is um, uh, Peggy growing back there? So this is Peggy Whitson, and this was just a few weeks ago on the International Space Station growing Tokyo Bacana, which is a variety of Chinese cabbage. And so what does she have to do to actually grow these within the, the veggie equipment itself? So we have plant pillows that contain the media, which is like a baked clay ceramic, similar to what you'd find on a baseball field. You know, after a, a large amount of rain, baseball dirt absorbs the water. And the same sort of thing happens with this baked ceramic clay that we put inside the plant pillows as the growth media. We also use a time-release fertilizer, similar to what you'd find at Lowe's like Osmocote in these plant pillows. And the seeds are already inside the plant pillows. So the astronauts just pull the plant pillows out, install them in veggie, and then they're able to add water directly to each plant pillow and control the water that goes inside each plant. And is it typically takes the same amount of time to grow up there than it does down here, or is there some challenges there? They do take about the same amount of time. I would say they grow maybe a day or two faster up there. Okay. Um, in the absence of gravity, they don't have the the weight pulling their leaves down. Um, but we, we find similar growth rates, really. And I'm sure they don't die as often as they do in my backyard, right? <laughs> Not in my backyard either. <laughs> <laughs> now, Annie, you were on the High Seas uh, mission, which is a simulated Mars mission that took place in Hawaii. I think we actually have a picture of it here, uh, where pretty much everything was simulated like it was an actual Mars mission. Your communications were delayed. You were isolated from anyone but your crewmates. You had to suit up before you leave. Even your meals were the ones that they would be in a Martian mission. You diet mostly prepackaged, dehydrated meals. I mean, if you had something like fresh lettuce, what would that do for that time that, that you were in isolation like that? Yeah, so all of our food was dehydrated and freeze-dried. So before every meal, we had to rehydrate our food, and it was very mushy, and it kind of loses taste. It's not as flavorful as maybe when it's fresh. Um, so one of our crew members, Lucy, she was actually growing plants under different wavelengths of light uh, for her research during the mission. And 
Anytime a harvest was on its way and we knew that the crew of six of us were going to be able to split, you know, a couple pieces of lettuce or crunchy radishes, it was a highly anticipated event. And at the meal, we would spend a lot of time slowly devouring each crunchy bite because we were not used to it. And we would talk about it the whole time during the meal. It was like the highlight. So... Um, and then it made us think about all the other foods back home that we liked and enjoyed. So it gave us something to look forward to and then talk about and then you know, look forward to again. So it really did raise everybody's spirits and just the, the satisfaction of like crunching into something. You don't realize um, that that's something that you can miss. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was amazing. Now, growing up, were you a kid that ate your vegetables? Oh, no. So even then, you thought it was a a fantastic thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Nicole, what are you hearing from from the astronauts on the space station? Do they they have that similar experience? Very similar feedback. You know, we get a chance to ask the astronauts after they come back from each mission. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Again, just a few weeks ago. Actually, mm, a week and a half ago. Um, this was the, the cabbage, part of the cabbage harvest that they did. So what we're doing right now on the cabbage growth in Space Station is something that gardeners call cut and come again, where they do a partial harvest of the leaves and take a couple leaves from each plant and then let it regrow more leaves so you have fresh food available for longer, a longer period of time, because it takes a while from get to, to get to seed, from seed to get to a harvestable plant size. So you might as well spend as long as you can as, at the harvest size and you know, enjoy the fruits of your fruits of your labor so they they absolutely love it just like annie said um every time that we've seen a harvest that they have been able to consume we see pictures like this on twitter mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 um, of, of astronauts around the table in the russian area enjoying lettuce wraps or putting it on a, putting pieces of lettuce on a sandwich and they're all sitting around together enjoying it which is nice I had a chance to go out and watch Nicole walk them through an experiment, and it was pretty much the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life, was watching Nicole chat with Mission Control and watching them do what she said. It was the, the coolest thing in the world. So what, what goes into selecting uh, a, a good plant? What makes a good plant candidate for growing in microgravity? Well... Um, our first selection was an outrageous red romaine lettuce, and we had a, quite a bit of time to work on crop selection for that first variety, and we wanted something that would grow quickly with low microbial loading, have uh, relatively high nutrition content, and taste good. And so that it was a fairly, fairly reliable crop, so we spent a lot of time working on that. When it came time to select another crop, we didn't have quite as long to work on it, but we picked one of our second candidates, the, the Chinese cabbage. Now, the Chinese cabbage grows really pretty decently under low CO2 conditions and fluorescent light. When you combine it with individually colored LEDs and high CO2, it can grow pretty well, but it also can have what they call chlorosis, like the uh, yellow spotting on the leaves, mm-hmm. which we have discovered it has shown itself in space station, but doesn't affect the, the taste. But it just looks, it you couldn't sell just, it, but who cares? You probably couldn't sell it in a grocery store, but an <laughs> astronaut probably is not going <laughs> to turn it down. Well, you have any questions for our panel? Like I said, we will take questions at the end, but you can tweet them to us now so you don't forget. Uh, send me your questions using the hashtag MarsTalk. Now, Annie, you're working on sub-technology that will take the waste on the spaceship, maybe what happens to that lettuce after it's eaten, uh, like the International Space Station, maybe one day a Martian transport vehicle, and you're turning that waste into a vital resource. Now, how does that actually work? 
So it's basically a lot of controlled thermochemical processes. We put the mixed waste that we have on a long duration mission inside of our reactor, which is composed of all different things like polymers, um, food that's left over inside of the packaging that you know gets stuck in the bottom. We have metallics, we have sneakers, cotton, um, their hygiene wipes. Uh, we also have fecal and urine simulant that we simulate as the waste, and we put it into our reactor. And depending on which technology we're you're using, and in our case we were mainly focusing on steam reforming, we would feed um, oxygen-enriched steam into the reactor, and the solid waste would thermally degrade into a gas. So once all of that solid becomes the gas, it's about 95% um, efficient in converting into CO2. Okay. Anything that isn't high enough in temperature, or, you know, under 500 C, um, will actually remain in the reactor. And so some of our products that don't turn into CO2 include activated carbon, some metallics because we have aluminum in the food packaging that does not melt at those mm. temperatures. And um, we feed the waste, or we feed this gas stream of carbon dioxide um, into something called the Sabatier reactor. And so that's the gist of how, how the thermochemical reactor works to degrade the waste into carbon dioxide. Mm. Did you want me to talk about Sabatier? So tra tra trash goes in and then carbon comes out, right? And this Basically. is this is what it kind of looks like, right? Yep. That's you standing next to that it. That is our steam reformer. And that's what you described it to me when I asked you what it looked like. <laughs> <laughs> I need to buy some googly eyes. And right? <laughs> so so you're getting the, the CO2 out of it. Now, how does that become anything that's that's usable? Okay, so we have this um, this waste stream that's all gas, and we send it through a heat exchanger. And the heat exchanger condenses out any of the usable water. So that liquid waste or that water can then be sent on for water use, whether you want to use it as actual liquid water or electrolyze it and strip out the hydrogen from the oxygen because maybe you want to use oxygen for breathing air or for um, liquid oxygen, which is one of the primary fuels of an ascent vehicle to return from Mars. Um, so that, that's what happens with the water stream. Then the rest of the gas stream would go into a Sabatier reactor. Sabatier mm. is actually the French scientist who came up with the exothermic reaction of taking carbon dioxide and adding hydrogen over a catalyst bed to create methane and water. So as long as you you keep feeding in the CO2 at the correct stoichiometric um, conditions cool and word. keep the reaction very stable thermally, meaning you don't change the temperature uh -huh. too far out of its preferred range, you're going to continuously produce this constant stream of methane and water. So it's a very sustainable reaction. And the methane is our primary product for propellant because, again, the primary fuel for a Mars ascent vehicle is liquid oxygen and liquid methane. So we really want to make as much methane as we can. And water, of course, is always valuable because right. it's water. So you're actually you're making fuel for a rocket that could take the astronauts back off the surface uh, to go to come back home, right? Yeah, so it can be used in transit during the long duration mission and then while they're habitating on the surface. So you brought some of the trash. Go ahead and show us what's actually going into this, into this mechanism. Okay, well I didn't bring it all with me because I figured you could imagine things like sneakers, um, uh, T-shirts. Sneakers? Is that really cotton. something you have to throw out all the time? Well, so they don't have a washing machine on the space station, so all of their clothing is actually, it's not one-time use. They actually wear it for a very long time. They apply an antimicrobial coating, and they wear it until morale goes down on the crew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when your buddy then, stinks too much, and right? And it becomes it. waste. Uh -huh. So, yeah, um, 
their, their clothing is all waste. Um, and they have actually done trade studies that said, you know, having a washing machine is way more inefficient than just having them wear it for a very, very long time. So some of the waste, some of the other waste, it's primarily polymer waste that becomes waste. So if you think of all the science that gets shipped up, all of that has a lot of packaging, so it doesn't get damaged on launch. But then we have all of the food packaging. So if you've never seen astronaut food packaging, it actually goes up like this. It just looks like a white um, wrinkled up pouch, and that's because it goes up evacuated with no uh, water inside. And when the astronauts are ready to eat, they'll actually remove it from the pouch, and it'll be a clear package like this. And so you would inject um, water in here to hydrate the food, and then if you need to heat it up, you would put it in the microwave that's on station. So what I'm holding right now, this is shrimp and the spicy part of the shrimp. Looks appetizing, doesn't it? <laughs> and this is a delicacy on the space station because it's spicy and it's actually very rich in taste. Um, so all of this becomes waste. You know, if any of the food gets left over inside and there's some crumbs, we have that food waste. Um, but then in our reactor, we're also putting in fecal and urine. So we actually have a recipe for feces and urine that we make in the lab to put in the reactor. How do you make lab grade poo? <laughs> Well, I don't have the Do recipe memorized, but it's a <laughs> agglomeration of some liquids, including miso soup and some, some ground-up hot dogs and other things. There's a whole recipe. I could email it to you if you want. That's okay. <laughs> Annie, you don't have to do that. <laughs> so, I, so what's the next steps for this? I mean, you've, you've got it in your lab. I, I got to go check it out the other day. Uh, I mean, and, and that Sabatier reactor that you're talking about that separates a lot of those things, that's actually being used right now on the International Space Station for life support, right? So you're, you're testing a lot of the stuff. Well, so the Sabatier reactor is on station for life support. That's actually helping convert the crew's carbon dioxide that they breathe out and converting that into methane and water. Right now, methane isn't needed, so the methane is vented, but then the water gets repurposed back into the station. Um, and also, the difference between having... Um, a life support Sabatier is that they run at sub-atmospheric pressure because you, and what that means is that it's almost like a vacuum because you're feeding in hydrogen and hydrogen is a flammable gas yeah, so if it ever leaked they wouldn't want it to leak out into the cabin so it actually operates at low pressure um, so that if there is a leak it, it doesn't harm the crew um, but in our case, because we would be using it for fuel production, we actually operate at higher pressure, much higher pressure. So uh, that's the, the biggest difference um, from the reactor that's on station and the re reactor that we're working on. Um, but to answer your other question about where is this going next, so a lot of these processes that we've tested were in a laboratory environment, and they were fully relying on gravity um, in the lab. So the really cool thing about space is that fluids behave totally different. Um, your hair stands up. If you have water, uh, it, it forms into bubbles. Uh, we have a very different convective heat transfer process that happens under heat and fluid flow. So all of that is what's going to hopefully be studied next in a series of microgravity experiments that we are hoping to achieve in the near future. Because just because we have this one technology that works great in Earth in the lab does not mean that it's going to work great in microgravity. It can be a game changer. So that's the next step is to look at everything in microgravity. So we talked about growing food on a spaceship. We talked about what to do with all of the trash. What happens when we actually land on Mars? How are the astronauts going to sustain themselves there? Dan, you're working with a team of researchers at Florida Tech just trying to figure out how to grow food on Mars. Now, I'm sure a lot of us here saw the Martian look super easy, right? That's, that's a piece of cake, right? 
Well, a piece of cake would be the ultimate. Uh, <laughs> That's what you're looking for. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a very open question, and it's a very fundamental question because it's going to d- drive the mission design as to how much food can actually be produced when you're on the surface. And this question of in-situ resource utilization is a, is a big question. I, we call it ISIU for short, of course. Everything has to have an acronym. And um, so you can assign a number to how good you are at in-situ resource utilization. And so if you, are, if you have an ISIU quotient of one, that means you're taking everything you need with you to the surface of Mars, all of the water, all of the fuel to get back, all of the food needed to sustain the crew for the entire mission, all of the science stuff, or, or everything, all of the spare parts, everything, everything. And the aim of uh, the, the research that we're doing is to try and get this ISIU quotient below one, so that you don't have to send everything needed from the surface of Earth. And so, ideally, we would get our ISU quotient down to zero over the next few decades, so that that means that anyone on the surface of Mars is actually independent of resupply from Earth, and that's actually very low risk as well, because obviously launching something to the surface of Mars doesn't always get there. Um, now, there are some other interesting things about this ISIU quotient. You can, you can ask yourself, what does an ISIU quotient above one mean? So that means you're taking more stuff than you actually need when you get there. So it's kind of a safety net. Or maybe you're taking some equipment that could be go on to build uh, a larger habitat, maybe from some of the materials that are already on the surface of Earth. And then you can all, uh, on the surface of Mars. And then you can also ask yourself, what is, what is an ISIU quotient of less than zero, a negative ISIU quotient? This is when Mars becomes a supplier. This is when Mars actually becomes a, a truly independent colony, and it, it could be going on to supply fuel for missions that would then extend themselves even further out into the solar system towards, for example, Ceres, which is essentially the largest rock between Mars and Jupiter. Now, um, in terms of the Martian itself, we saw, or read, if you prefer, uh, <laughs> that an awful lot of time was spent by uh, Mark Watney bringing in the surface material found on Mars, which we call regolith. Um, it's also called regolith on the moon and on asteroids as well. This is the stuff that you find lying around. Um, an awful lot of time was spent bringing that into the habitat. All right? So the first thing to realize is that you are actually going to try and grow these things in a simulated atmosphere. You're not going to try and grow them on the actual surface of Mars itself in the Martian atmosphere. We don't know of any life yet that can survive in that environment. Right? So you, you would spend a lot of time, uh, Mark Watney spent a lot of time bringing this material into a habitat, and then you saw that um, he uh, increased the humidity to get the moisture into the soil, uh, introduced the, cut up the potatoes, put those in there, and then introduced some nutrients. That Annie can make in her lab for you. Well, you. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so this is the bit we don't like, is that there's a reason the human body gets rid of that stuff, and uh, you, the human body doesn't want it back no. again. Um, uh, yeah, and um, so we, we have to ask that question. Is that a good way? Is that a good way of growing stuff, using the regolith? Now, it turns out that the regolith itself um, can't be brought from the surface of Mars yet. Um, it, is, um, it hasn't been done. We have not yet returned a sample of Martian regolith to Earth. We do have samples of the Martian surface from uh, meteorites that have actually come from the surface of Mars after some impacts and orbital transfer and stuff like that, so we know what the surface is like. And we've got robots driving around, firing lasers. It's pretty cool. Mm. Uh, to determine what the surface properties are like... And so if we want to know how Earth biology is going to interact with Martian regolith, so to see how well it would grow when you get there, you have to simulate 
that regolith from things you find on Earth. And the, the one that we're using right now is called Mars JSC-18, and it's actually from uh, probably fairly close to where the uh, High Seas mission was, because uh, it comes from uh, an area on uh, Mauna Kea in, in mm-hmm. Hawaii. Um, and, um, yeah, so we've looked at that stuff. We've uh, figured out that uh, the reason NASA prefers that is because it's actually a mechanical simulant. So it would behave mechanically the same way if you were to push it around. Mm. And so there hasn't yet been what we call an agriculturally accurate simulant. And so one of the research projects that we're doing is to actually produce an agriculturally accurate regolith simulant, which would take all of the relative weights of all of the minerals that are actually found on the surface of Mars and kind of mix and match them to the potential region on Mars where we think a colony is going to be because Mars is a planet. Mm -hmm. If you land in point A, the stuff you're going to find is going to be different from if you land in point B, just just the same as on Earth, right? You could land in an ocean on Earth, right? And so, um, yeah, the first question is, can you use regolith? Uh, And if you can use regolith, is is it actually efficient to do so? Mm. Because there are other ways to grow plants. You don't always have to put them in soil. You can actually grow plants straight in water, hydroponically. Or you can actually grow them in gel Mm. as well. Uh, There's some special gels you can use to grow them. So which is going to be the best way to do that? Uh, So we're starting with the regolith. See see how much water is needed uh, to to actually grow earth plants in Martian regolith simulants. So uh, what we're seeing uh, in this image here is some of the results that the students have found um, from growing uh, lettuce and peas and tomatoes uh, in the regolith simulant. Uh, And what we're finding is an awful lot of water is needed uh, because the regolith uh, has to absorb a lot of that water and get it to where the seeds are. Mm. Um, And the other thing we're finding is that you need to introduce the right amount of nutrients into Uh, that regolith because if you just grow the the plants with just water and regolith they don't do well at all they 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 do not produce uh the biomass a useful amount of calories right um yeah and so that that's the that's the research that we're doing doing right now we are we are actually growing stuff and 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 you you can see a lot of people are trying this the difference is that I, i don't mean to sound snobbish or anything but we're a university we're doing this we're following the scientific mm. method we're going to publish this in a peer-reviewed journal we're not just going to make a blog post about this and then try and get clicks mm. uh, we're, we're doing this for for real yeah <laughs> and and what's been the biggest challenge that that your researchers are, are finding you said that it takes a lot of water to do that is that the, the biggest issue that you have to the biggest hurdle you have to overcome for this well, we, we are finding an awful lot of uh, interesting uh, results, uh, and one of the big, biggest challenges is actually getting the supply of water to the plants. Uh, typically, everyone goes outside with their watering can and right. waters plants, right? So where would, where would you get water when you're on Mars if not bringing it with you? Oh, well, the, the, it's like the rhyme of the ancient mariner. The water, water is everywhere. It's, okay. uh, yeah, w- uh, water's everywhere on Earth. Um, it, we, we know that it's in comets and asteroids, and uh, we've got solid evidence that uh, uh, water ice is in subsur- just below the surface of Mars. And so we don't think actually getting water is it's not going to be one of the biggest problems. Yes, there are still some technology developments that need to be done, uh, but actually finding the water on Mars as well, we're not going to need to take all the water. Uh, but getting that water to the seeds has been actually one of the, one of the interesting problems that we found. Um, so what, the way the students have decided to do this to start with is to put the pots in a pool of water and allow that water to soak up from the bottom. This is not the way that you water your plants in the garden. And the reason they had to do that is when you water the plants from the top, the regolith is essentially like sand and it would just either wash away or compact into clay. Um, and so if we are to have an, an irrigation system that, that 
top feeds, drops water on the plants rather than soaks it up from the bottom. Uh, we're going to have to very carefully design how that uh, water is introduced into the plant system. It's, and it's, um, you know, it's very similar to the, the, the water supply problems that have been found on orbit. Now, you're also working uh, at the Kennedy Space Center on robotic farming. Can you kind of walk us through uh, what you're trying to accomplish with that? Well, one of the interesting things to realize about space is that uh, crew time is incredibly important. Um, there, nominally, there are six people on the International Space Station, and the amount of work that you get out of uh, the astronauts is not that high. Um, so the amount of science that's actually done on the space station is low compared to the amount of crew time spent simply to keep the station up there right, and keep the crew healthy and keep themselves healthy. So there's hours spent on exercise, for example. And so the breakdown of crew time is very important. And this is, um, this is why, for example, you need six people uh, to, to go on a mission, why the mission simulations have six people. You have cross-training. Most of the people there are just to keep the upkeep going. And occasionally you get to do some research. And if you look at a cross-section of society, you see this reflected in society, right? A lot of people have jobs that are then going on to support lucky people like us sitting on the stage that get to do the fun stuff, right? Which is where we're actually doing research at the cutting edge. And so we see the same type of uh, breakdown when we're, when, we're, um, when we're carrying out these missions. So crew time is important. If we can reduce crew time by using robotics, we want to know how much crew time can be reduced. On the other hand, we also know that, you know, along with eating the crunchy stuff, people like to do gardening. This is a hobby, mm-hmm. right? And it can be if a distraction. If you're good at it, right? It, yeah, it can be a distraction. If your life doesn't depend on it, right, <laughs> yeah. it can be a distraction, right? So there, there might, there's some benefit to having astronauts interact with the, the plants, as we already know. They, they, love, they like doing this. It's a distraction. But, but finding out how much that can be done robotically is important, not just when people are on the surface, but as we are setting up the surface to receive crew. So you have to do things robotically. We, the only things we've done on Mars are robotically. And so you're working on, you sent me this photo last night. Uh, this is something you're, you're setting up uh, over at the Kennedy Space Center, right? Yeah, so this is in a, 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 a recently retasked lab in the Space Station Processing Facility. And this is a piece of equipment called FarmBot. And this is actually from a Kickstarter that was done by a, a group of uh, highly cunning individuals. And what you're seeing is uh, essentially a rail system that operates in the same kind of coordinates that a 3D printer does. And so there's a nozzle that gets moved around on a grid, uh, and that nozzle can deliver seeds, and it can deliver nutrients, and it can deliver water based on a computer program. And so you can pre-program this uh, device to plant a seed, Uh, water the seed, provide the nutrients to the seed, monitor the health of the plant, uh, and then take appropriate action without any interaction from a crew. My wife's going to want one in the background or backyard now, so thanks for that, Dan. Appreciate that. (laughs) Well, I want to shift gears just a little bit here. And, Nicole, your team, you invited me to visit on a day when you were all conducting an actual experiment on the International Space Station. It was super cool. You're sitting on console, you're talking to folks running the, state, uh, running the experiment, and astronaut Peggy Whitson was watering the seedlings, just planted them per your instructions. Mm-hmm. You've got to describe that feeling. How cool is it to work on something that's in space? Very cool. <laughs> um, so when I first started at NASA, I started in a job that was already pretty, pretty awesome. We put the time-sensitive experiments inside the space shuttle, right before launch, and then after landing, we took them out, so we got to be go over in the shuttle and grab these cool experiments and bring them back to the PI, 
And so after the space shuttle program was over, I was like, well, what am I going to do now? You know, can't get, can't get better than what I just did. But it, it just got better with Veggie. And, and seeing the development of that payload from the ground up um, was really satisfying. And seeing it in space for the first time was just amazing. Now, Whitson, she's a female astronaut. You're a female engineer. Annie's a female chemist sitting here. Engineer, I'm sorry. <laughs> Chemical engineer. Chemical engineer, sorry. Do you think that there's been a big enough push to get women into these science fields? I think it's getting better. I know when I first went to school, you know, engineering was not my first major. I was a science major, and I didn't actually know what engineers did. Um, and, you know, my father was a teacher, and he would take trips with his class to the Kennedy Space Center every year and, you know, tour, th tour around, and I was like, I want to work there. And, you know, the, the, the spiel that you would hear is that we have scientists working on this. So, you know, thinking that it's just, it's just scientists. But I would say that 95% of the people that do work at the Kennedy Space Center are, are engineers that support the scientists. <laughs> so, you know, engineering is a, is a much more practical way if, if someone's looking to work at NASA. Did, Annie, did you have a, a female that you could look up to and say, hey, I can do this, this is something I want to do? Uh, when I was in high school, actually, I didn't know what an engineer was either. I had an older brother, and um, people were telling him to look into engineering. And so when he was, you know, looking into those programs, I was getting dragged along or following along. And I heard a professor speak at a school in the chemical engineering department, and she explained it very well, and she just, just explained all the different things you could do as a chemical engineer, whether it be... Um, you know, manufacturing or pharmaceuticals or sustainable energy, and, and she said it was really difficult, and, you know, but why are we here on this planet? And I just, like, she, like, spoke to me, and I was like, this is what I want to do. I didn't really even know what engineering was yet, but um, I did have a good chemistry teacher my last year of high school, and he um, made me interested in chemistry. But if it wasn't for having, honestly, for having an older brother, I probably wouldn't have done engineering. So I, it's really nice, though, to see how the world is changing, and there's a lot more STEM activities mm -hmm. out there that include everyone. And any time I get the chance to do outreach, I mean, I'm out there when I can. So, you know, I have to do my day job still. Mm -hmm. But if I can get out there, because a lot of people look at us, and they, it's still a stereotype. It's like, oh, you're, mm -hmm. you're an engineer. And then when you tell me you work for NASA or, you know, do something really cool, it's like, no way. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so yeah, it's, I, I'm the only female in my lab, actually. But if you go down the hall, there's another project where it's all females in the lab. So I think it depends where you are. It's still a very male-dominated field, but um, I, I think it's, it's on its way to, to changing. And it was actually really funny. I know this is going off topic, but I was in a meeting the other day, and um, we talk about how gender brings diversity. And there was a, an issue going on between um, two groups, and they weren't... We, weren't really communicating very well. And I was like, why don't we just have a meeting together? Mm -hmm. You know, and it was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, and it, it was just really funny. I was like, why, why is this a big mm -hmm. deal? But anyway, I think that, um, yeah, just having all different people always brings a better outcome no matter what, because everyone has their own mm -hmm. background. Even if they grew up in a different state or a different country, it doesn't just have to be gender. It's mm -hmm. just all kinds of differences that just make everything have a better product. So... Mm -hmm. I'll put this to the whole group. I mean, we're, we're going to be talking about the Mars generation soon, the, the people that are going to Mars and that will live on Mars. How do we ensure that there's that diversity 
in, in those jobs and those skills of, of the hard sciences and the engineering and the mathematics. How are we going to do that right now to ensure that there's diversity in that next generation? You posed that to the group, so we're, I did. we're, we're going to bat that one around. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> Just because you're in my line of sight. <laughs> I don't really know. Is just keep doing things like this, make sure you're inclusive, try and break the stereotypes, yeah, and just encourage and, and keep up the enthusiasm mm -hmm. and, and really make sure that you're targeting that K through 12 environment where the impressions of young people really are formed and the, you know, the, the experiences that people have in the K through 12 environment go on to form that, that, that grown up, right? And so if you, you make sure that you, you um, you know, keep people away from the stereotypes, um, and uh, yeah, just just be a good person. It doesn't. I mean, what's the difficulty? <laughs> Nicole, is there something? Um, is there something you wish that you had growing? And it has up? to be profound. <laughs> More profound than uh, be nice. Be nice. <laughs> well, you know, I was going to say I, I have a four-year-old daughter, and I do often look at her and think, um, you know, when you're 30 years old, people could be living on Mars, and that's just kind of awesome to think it's that... It's super awesome. It's super awesome, <laughs> yeah. you know. We'll, we'll go all the way and say super awesome. Um, and just thinking about that and, and the skills that those kids need. They need a well-rounded education, so you need science, technology, engineering, and math, and arts as well. Um, you need, you need the, full, the full game, I think, to really think out of the box and, and make our way there. Well, now that we've ventured into the realm of, of profound thoughts... <laughs> I'm going to pose this to the group as well, and I'll call on each one of you individually because I can't count on you guys to jump in and answer. <laughs> but there, it's, we're learning that it's, it's difficult. Mars is tough. It's not a very fun place to be at this point. Why are we even exploring Mars? What, why, why push ourselves to do something like that? I'll, I'll go if you want. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. <laughs> this is what we do. This is humanity. Come on, this is what we do. We explore. We wouldn't have got this far in life if we had just sat in our cave and wondered why the sky was blue. Um, it's what we do. And, um, you know, the, the thing with Mars is like the thing with the Apollo missions. It's going to be a huge technology driver and a huge way of getting more people into the STEM and STEAM disciplines, right? If we can figure out how to live sustainably on Mars, then maybe we can figure out how to live sustainably on Earth because we really aren't very good at doing that right now. And so the Mars mission is not only going to inspire the next generation to keep moving forward uh, the forefront of technology development, but it could also really help the quality of life back here on Earth, not only from the technology needed to fix what we've done to the Earth, uh, but also to get you know, everybody engaged and just be one human race. Mm -hmm. Annie, a lot of your work is with sustainability. Do you hope that that same technology that you're developing for trash to gas is something that can be used here on Earth and, and kind of help us here be sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of backtrack to the question you had just mm -hmm. asked and then tie in, 
Um, so I'm from New York, and growing up, my, my grandfather was actually a sanitation worker in New York City, and he told us a lot of stories of what it was like being a garbage man, and um, it made me really interested growing up, figuring out where do all of these millions and millions of people's trash go every day, because you just put, you put your trash can out, and then somebody picks it up, and you don't even worry about where it goes. Mo most people don't worry about where it goes. Um, so I actually, in college, um, did a whole paper on the history of the garbage of New York before I even knew I was going to work at NASA, actually, <laughs> and work on You were meant for this job, conversion. weren't you? <laughs> um, and what, what, um, what really drives me about the job of where I am at NASA is that, you know, a lot of people wonder, well, who cares about the space program? We have so many problems going on in our planet, but little people, so many people don't even realize that the technology that we are trying to produce to go and explore and have sustainable human exploration on other planets spins off and does benefit Earth. So, for example, if we are coming up with this compactful waste conversion system that can take a lot of different types of trash, not just bio-waste, not just manure, not just paper, not just wood chips, um, but like a whole bunch of stuff and convert it into a fuel that could possibly be co-generation for electricity. Um, you know, p places like universities that have a ton of waste from just the cafeteria alone, or if we have a technology that can convert medical waste or, um, you know, a hospital could use that and put their, trace, their trash directly in the unit like this and convert it. So I think that um, that's something that needs to be translated back into society and into the young children that maybe um, aren't aware of what the space program is doing for the planet because you need to make things important for the people right now. Why is this important to me now? I live in this generation where I want instant gratification now. And it's like, okay, well, you're surrounded by waste piling up around you. There's CO2 emissions that are... Um, encapsulating this earth and degrading our atmosphere and here we are trying to figure out all these co2 conversion technologies and waste conversion technologies i mean that is not only helping space exploration and fuel production and making rocket fuel out of poo but it's also helping um, make this place better and if we can reach those small corners where you don't even know a space program is existing like a lot of people in new york don't really pay attention to the space program down here in florida just because they're in new york they're in all the lights and everything um, so if you can reach out and, and have some niche as to why should that person care about science and technology and what are we doing on the cutting edge of space exploration, I think you can spin somebody 180 to have a totally different view on life. So that's something that I try and do when I go out is just make one person have that 180, even mm -hmm. in a crowd full of you know, lots of people or, or even if it's just a classroom full of kids. If you get one kid, maybe they're going to grow up and do something that changes everything. You know, mm -hmm. that's, I think that's why a lot of us are here and do what we do. Nicole, what's your, what's your pitch to, to explore? Well, I, well, I, wish, I, think, I think the journey will bring this planet together. You know, we as a country cannot do this alone. And it will bring the world together the way the space race of the 60s brought America together. I think it will be, you know, a, a monumental event and a monumental journey for everybody. Now, you all work in, in the thick of it, so you've got a, a good idea of this, but, you know, is your daughter going to be one that, that lands on Mars? Are we going to get there in that time frame? I sure hope so. You sure hope so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what do you guys yeah. think? When, when do you think we'll, we'll have boots on the ground? I, I, do, I do think it, would be, it will be within her lifetime. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully it's in my lifetime, too. <laughs> I, I sure hope it's within my lifetime, but, you know. Well, I mean, 
we know that there's this kind of running joke that Mars has been 20 years away for 50 years, right? And um, the, the missions that we've been seeing and the work that's been do- being done right now, you know, it's tempting to say that this is Mars deja vu all over mm-hmm. again. We've had Bush's um, space exploration initiative that died in Congress because it was going to cost $450 billion. We've had the Mars Direct um, mission that was proposed that then morphed into the design reference mission. And now we're kind of left at this point where we realize that it's a really big problem. And in order to tackle that, you have to solve a lot of little, little problems. And we are at least at that stage right now. We are solving these little problems of, you know, how much can you, how much food can you grow? whilst you're on the trip there and whilst you get to the surface. How much food can you recycle and what can be recycled and how useful is that? These are profoundly, profoundly important questions for designing an actual, real, workable and sustainable mission for getting to Mars. So I think that's the difference that we, we are seeing now from, from this, the, the late 80s, early 90s to, to, to the research that we're doing now. We are making progress. It's small, but the momentum is going to gather. The public support is growing. We just need to translate the enthusiasm from the scientists to the public, to the people that hold the purse strings, and let them know that it is risky, but it's going to be worth it, and that's okay. Now, Nicole, or would you sign up to go? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, there are much better qualified people out there. Uh-huh. No, I, and I was going to um, tag along to Dan's, Dan's feedback, is that we're in a, an, a commercial space age where, you know, the idea of, of profit and making money is coming into this and billionaires willing to put up their, their personal fortunes to really fulfill their lifelong dreams. And, and I, think, I think that is doing nothing but helping us mm-hmm. on our journey here. We're going to have cheaper technology to help us get to Mars, and, and that will work out for everybody. Annie, are you signing up? I would. Yeah. I have tried, but I've been rejected, so I will keep trying. Annie would make a really great astronaut. I think so. From I think so. <laughs> I told my wife when I took over this beat, I would never go into space, so I have to maintain that. So, Well, that's, that's all the questions I had for you guys that I've um, prepared, but we are going to open it up to questions uh, from the audience. So if anybody wanted to come up to the microphone, you guys can just line up there um, and ask some questions. These guys are, are awesome. Everybody's jumping up at once. All right, well, we're going to take some questions from Twitter then. Um, I have someone that says vegan food is still the most efficient food in terms of energy and waste. Will NASA work on sending vegan meat to Mars? Has anybody thought of vegan meat? It depends how much it weighs, quite frankly. If, if, if it's efficient enough to, to take that amount of mass. It's all about how much mass you have to take. Um, if, it's, if that's the most efficient way of doing it, then it'll, the, the mission will down-select towards taking that type of food. Sure, and you're always going to have some sort of supplied packaged food, you know, with heavy, dense nutrient essentials. You know, our goal is, our group's goal is to provide fresh food as a supplement to um, the main diet. We'll take a question. Justin? Thanks for coming out, everyone. Um, Buzz Aldrin yesterday made an announcement or kind of a challenge to NASA and, and was speaking about the International Space Station and you know, we're spending $3.5 billion a year to fund it, and, and that if we really wanted to get to Mars, that we would, uh, you know, retire the station and, and, and use that money to go forward. But everything I'm hearing 
from you guys today tells me that that's such an important key to, to going to Mars is having this tool to, to, to get there and to test these things. And I know the space station is planning on being retired, but how do you see that going forward in the future? Uh, you know, once Orion gets up there and, and, and docks and, and we start moving forward, is, is, is the space station the right way to go or, or is there another solution? Sure, so I can answer a little bit of that. So NASA has strategic goals that it's outlined to use the station to, as a proving ground for smaller technologies as we get to Mars. And it, you know, our goals are phased through 2024 out to 2028. Um, and, and that's why we are looking at bringing commercial partners in to also augment the station use and, and hopefully alleviate some of those budgetary woes. Great, thank you. Thank you. And what was your name? Oh, okay. your, yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, Desiree. Um, I'm an environmental scientist. Cool. Like, and I dip and dabble in agriculture, so I don't know a ton about space. But I know right now we're just talking about getting to Mars. But I was thinking long term. I think I was listening to like Science Friday a couple of weeks ago, and they're talking about how expensive it is to mm -hmm. ship things uh, into space. We're not even talking about Mars. Like it would take mm -hmm. forever. Mm -hmm. But um, like growing plants, wouldn't I know that water? Like I just did a whole thing with water reclamation. Um, wouldn't I know we'd have to tweak the science of it a lot because it relies a lot on oxygen. But couldn't we use like a, the water reclamation process to kind of sustain the plants because the biosolids are produced, and then sure. you can use that to fertilize, so you don't have to bring in fertilizer. And I imagine that Mars is a lot of sand, so you can combine that sand and those biosolids and make a really nice, rich soil for stuff to grow in. But I know you're discussing other ways to grow plants, but that was. Could we use that, or would it be just right, too so right, much of a process? Right to tweak now, it? much of the water on space station is is water recovered water from the humidity system, or the 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 waste processing system. So, and and the water we get to water our plants comes from that reclaimed water. Um, so, station has something that they use like that right now, and I would imagine in the future. It goes back to the last question. Yeah, mm -hmm. not the the type of work that. Buzz Aldrin is impatient, right? Let's, <laughs> let, let's realize that. But yeah, a lot. Of, yeah, no, this just highlights Please more of the more of the work on station that's being done in order to support a mission to Mars. Not a, not only is it the water reclamation, the atmospheric conditioning, um, but it's also the crew as well. Um, the crew are spending a lot of time in closed quarters. A, a team of six of them. Those interpersonal relationships can get strained. Just because you're an astronaut doesn't mean you are this um, you know total human being that's going to be able to operate effectively in a life or death situation for years that is an, a stress that humans have, have never experienced before and so uh, yeah but getting back to the um taking the nutrients yeah we would have to take the first set of nutrients but one of the experiments that uh, will be going on at florida tech over the next couple of uh, semesters is the students have saved the regolith simulant that they have used for the first generation of plants so there is biomatter that has been introduced into that regolith as well as excess nutrients and so the second generation and the third generation and the fourth generation of crops as they do on earth are going to change the way that change the the makeup of that soil and so it actually the, the future for um, an extended colony on mars actually it should be getting easier and easier and easier the hardest mission will be the first mission i have some numbers to tag on to do that. you have numbers 
That's what my notes were for before <laughs> <then>. <laughs> So for a crew of four that's in space for one year, they will actually produce enough methane, 3,300 pounds of methane um, that can be used as fuel, or a little over 600 um, pounds of water from the trash wow. to gas and out of the water that you can actually extract out of the wet waste. If you think about um, one pound of payload actually costs $10,000 to launch out of low Earth orbit. But for every two pounds of methane that we can produce on the surface of Mars, that'll save us over 20 pounds that we have to launch from Earth. So if we can figure out ways to get equipment there and be harvesting all of this resource from both the atmosphere, because it's carbon dioxide rich, and from the waste, um, we can be producing fuel so that we can save lots of money and be producing water um, before a crew arrives, or if we have that in-transit um, crew trash system. It can, it can really save a lot of money. This is a good follow-up question from Twitter from Brett Watson. He asks, how long does it take the reactor to convert that waste into something useful? Oh, man, I didn't write that in my notes. Um, so in our, in our reactor in the lab, from my memory, we are processing about one kilogram every 30 minutes of weight, every 30 minutes into carbon dioxide. So if you think about, you know, it would have to be a batch process because they're not always like producing garbage mm -hmm. enough to feed this reactor. So you would have to have a pile of, of waste ready to go and load it into the reactor. But if you do the math, somehow multiply that out, um, you can figure it's quite out. quite a bit though. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah. All right, we'll take the next question. Okay, my question is for Amy, and by the way, thank you all for coming. Your magical uh, trash to gas mechanism here. You had mentioned high pressure and low pressure. I was just curious what the pressures were approximately for the two. Sure. So that was the so that's the Sabatier reactor. That's okay. the part that we have the carbon dioxide gas and we have the hydrogen. So now we are passing it through a catalyst bed on station that runs at below atmospheric pressure, so less okay. than fourteen point seven. Um, in our lab, under our system, we're actually running at about 40 PSI. Okay. So it's, it's not very high, but okay. it is higher. So that, okay. those are the numbers. Thank you. You're welcome. We'll take another one from the audience. Hi, I'm Carolyn. Um, in 2015, my husband and I uh, lived on the big island of Hawaii for about two months. And we're not scientists or anything like that, but you'd hear that, oh, those people are there or they're coming or they're doing. And um, so I didn't know if it was a rumor or if it was really true. Um, but could you just explain a little more what you did while you were there? Sure, really quick. Um, it was a, it's a six-person crew. It's a psychological study that NASA's putting on to see how astronauts will perform under high stress and with delayed communication. We saw that place, um, by the way. <laughs> and you're, yeah, so you're in total isolation, no real-time communication, and uh, there's a lot of different universities that have a lot of psychological testing going on to see how the crew would become autonomous and respond and sort of... Um, not rely on mission control as much because we won't have immediate communication on our systems or on issues going on. And astronauts, real astronauts, are pretty good at um, not telling mission control when something is going wrong. So <laughs> one of the worries 
I guess one of the challenges is psych psychology sure. for a deep space mission when you're when you have this crew in confined quarters, and they want to you know work out some of the kinks now on the ground where it's a lot cheaper to run simulations and bring in people from all over the world um, to participate and try and work out some of the cognition tools and ways that they can select a crew for Mars. Um, so you can check it out online, highseas.org. It's high okay. and it's then an hyphen seas.org. <laughs> Were there different groups of six people? Yeah, so I was on the first psychological study, which was, um, it's, it's always six different people to keep okay. the data you know, fresh and unpredictable. And I had a four-month mission, and then after me was an eight-month, and then there was a one-year. And wow. now an eight-month mission is in the habitat right now. So you can follow them and yeah. and one know, of watch our their one of our former mission. interns well, is part of that. It's fun mission. for me yeah, because sure. really we just heard it as a rumor, and it's really nice to know that it <laughs> actually <true>. happened. So <laughs> thank you, Annie. What did you miss the most in those four months? Um, my two dogs, because yeah. you can't tell dogs, "Hey, I'll be back," you know, in a while. <laughs> one minute, we'll be back in one minute. That's yeah. what I tell mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I miss I miss them the most because you just can't explain to them where you're going. Are there, are there plans for Martian dogs? I mean, that's got to be good for... <laughs> they actually, on some of the missions, they had robotic pets. And we actually, my crew member who was growing plants, she had um, plants that we could grow. We were taking care of. The crew was taking care mm -hmm. of. And it was, oh, who's going to kill the plant this week, you know? <laughs> and, but that was the best, because it was like having a plant and, you know, having a pet and saying, like, I hope you live to see another day. And <laughs> here's some food and water. So it was, uh, that was our... Pet on Mars. <laughs> Excellent. We'll take another question. Ricardo. Hi, Brendan. Uh, thank you for doing this. I'm a big fan. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, and this is kind of a, in relation to what Dan said earlier, that how space exploration is a huge driver of technologies that help people here on Earth. Um, something that's very well documented in science fiction is dementia, like people going crazy out in space for being there too long or what have you. Um, is there any uh, research being done on current astronauts and how, if they were perhaps maybe lose it or whatever, to help people on Earth go through losing it? Like basically any applications to like therapeutic applications for astronauts that could be used for they could do that in the newsroom. There's a few people yeah. that drive me crazy. <laughs> definitely people on Earth that definitely. I'm, I'm sure that there is. That's just not um, what. I think any of us are familiar with. There, there was one thing on high seas that we used that, that they do use in the workplace. If you have um, sort of a dysfunctional workplace, they sell these sociometric badges that we actually wore on our mission the whole time, and that you wear them around your neck, and it tells you how often you speak to each crew member, how loud you're speaking, um, and who you're talking to, and it's this data that's collected um, huh. to see, like, oh, you know, who who's gonna not talk to who? And so they actually are used. I guess that's not really losing it in the workplace in, in life, but they are term, they are so. using that in um, in workplaces to help cohesion and um, you know teams perform better. But that, a, that was just one thing. And a quick follow up. Um, are there any instances where astronauts fit, like are monitored and they're like on the brink? Like, what do you do? Do they follow through with their mission, or do they have to send them back home or something? Or, well, I mean, I, I've done some reporting and talking to some sociologists and psychologists, and you know, the pre-screening is very important for that. Where you know, the goal is for that to not happen, right? Because that'd be bad. You you can't send someone back because you know 
they're homesick or they're having a bad day, right? There's, right. I don't think there's been any instance where someone's like, nope, enough, I'm coming back, and they've been able to do it. So, but one, one, sorry, I was going to say, and medical privacy is just as applicable yeah. on, in space as it is here. So all the astronauts um, have those same rights. So you may not, we may not be privy to that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when I first, first started working on this master, I, I was actually blown away by the psychological side of this. And it goes on to highlight why this is such an important mission, because it engages almost any area of society you can think of. It's not just a science, a technology, an engineering, a mathematics problem. It is a psychology problem. It is a sociological problem. It is a business problem as well. How are, we go- how are we going to fund this? Is it, is it worthwhile? Is, is there going to be enough materials there to actually for somebody to make money? Because this is another driver for getting there. And then the, the recent, um, well maybe it's not recent, recent to me, new to me idea was um, why haven't we gone yet? Why, what has stopped us from going? Because, you know, if, if the We've had this technology around to at least get to the moon for, for over 30 years, and people are disappointed, I think, that we haven't been there yet. Is there something about this mission that is putting a psychological stop on us getting there? And I think that's a, that's a conversation that's worth having. Um, I don't think it's a cost problem. We, we see that governments are quite happily spending hundreds of billion dollars on other things. Um, I think perhaps this is, a, this is an interesting psychological problem to, uh, discussion to have. It is risky. People are going to get die. Um, and maybe that's, what, maybe that's what's stopping it. Nobody wants to be the politician that signed the budget that killed somebody. I don't know. But this is a conversation that I've only just started. So I'd be happy to <laughs> speak with a professional about it. I didn't know it was going to go there, but thank yeah. you. Yeah. So Thanks we're not for going. opening that can of worms, Ricardo. <laughs> We'll go ahead and take another question from the audience here. Thanks for uh, hosting it and appreciate the Thanks for coming. Uh, speakers coming out. Um, I was just wondering, uh, you have made a couple of mentions about uh, private institutions and uh, companies, really, that are starting to include themselves in, I guess, what's spawned from the public institution and space race, whatever. Um, so rocketry and components are obviously a part of the uh, what we're seeing is, I guess, cheaper stuff, and that's going to help out a lot. But what, what is the extent of private markets? Because private markets are a very uh, broad subject. And what is the extent of including private markets into these ventures in the future? What's, what's the new catchphrase, and not or, is what I've been hearing, is that you know when you talk about uh, the, the federal f- aspect of things and the private, it's not a, it's not a race, it's, a, it's an and that everybody needs to work together, and, and it's not one or the other. Um, I, I think that's very important to make that distinction. Well, I have direct experience with this. I, I, self-promotion. I just recently launched a payload to the International Space Station using a private launch provider. Um, and uh, I can tell you that um, because you are paying for a service, the launch service provider does not care whether your payload works. And that is different from the way uh, it has been done in the past, where an awful lot of testing has to be done to ensure that the payload will work once it gets on orbit. But the, the private, private sector doesn't care as long as you pay them. Absolutely. 
And with the reusability of core stages of rockets as well, the cost is coming down significantly. And so the, the, the payload that we have, uh, the active payload we have on station right now is about the size of a, a tissue box. And this is something that a private university can... A private university didn't fund this, but a private university could fund this. It costs about the same as um, a nice family sedan to put up a box about this size and get it back. Okay, so moving away from transport, what is the extent of private markets in any business sure, for so, this in the future? So um, we also use um, private companies that provide facilities on the ISS, um, whether it be a microscope or a centrifuge or other things that are currently in development. Um, that, that's something that's, that's kind of taking off as private companies are developing facilities for scientists and private um, company, other private companies to use. Um, and we also use other private companies to provide, like, launch integration services on exciting paperwork. Thank stuff. you. And I, I think it's also interesting to talk about the, the commercialization in space. There was just a, um, a Senate hearing where one of the uh, executives from Made in Space, they're the folks that have the, uh, the 3D printer in space. And one of the, the questions that um, the senators asked them is, how, how can we make this easier for you? And they said, well, we need to make sure that whatever we build up there and it comes back, you don't tax us again or something like that. So they're, they're trying to figure out ways to make commercialization work. And it seems like Congress is, is getting behind it. But I thought that was an, an interesting conversation that the Senate was having with, with them. So uh, next question. Hi. Um, it's for Natalie and Amy. Um, I'm from the opposite spectrum. I was a saturation diver. So I've spent um, 30 days at 1,000 feet below the surface. And... I know our food had no flavor. You basically, <laughs> it was just sustenance. Have the astronauts talked about how the fresh food, and you mentioned, you know, the radishes or whatever, and I don't know what type of environment you were in, just other than isolated. But I know we had to do the psychological testing, too, because you're in a very small area. But have they talked about the taste of the food? Yes, they have. You know, lettuce has its own unique taste, and it is kind of a strong, bitter quality, which up on the, in space is a, is a positive thing because sharp tastes, your taste buds are dulled, so now you can actually taste the lettuce versus it's just crunchy and you can't taste anything. So they've, they've commented that they like that and that they like the fresh food. So it is the similar food loot does lose its taste as it's packaged. Yes. Uh, well, just, just your taste buds. Your taste buds in space because the fluid, your fluid shifts inside your body to, to kind of like, similar when you have a cold, that feeling when you have a cold and your nose is clogged up and you can't taste food quite as, it's, it's similar to that. So okay. food has a sharper taste. Okay, thank you. For the most part. And what's your name? I'm, I'm Atelio, and um, I would really like to know when astronauts land on Mars, where would they land? That is a good question. I think they're trying to <laughs> figure That's that out now. That's actually up for a big debate right now. I think it's going to be announced this year or very soon. I feel like in a couple of months it's going to be announced. But it's probably going to be somewhere around the equator region is my guess, unless you guys know um, something. So scientists have egos. So every scientist you'll talk to will say that their idea is the best idea. And so there are like there were about 43 different proposed landing sites. And every individual scientist said, this is the best landing site because there's going to be easy access to water or this is going to be the most scientifically interesting region. And so there's going to be 
um, what happens a lot in, in science and engineering, a, a trade study done about what is going to be the best balance between where the resources are to support the colony and where the science can be done. One of the biggest questions is in the, the human race faces is, is there life elsewhere in the universe? And Mars is actually one of the easiest places, one of the easiest places to go to actually test that question. And so landing at the end of a, uh, a, an area that used to be at the end of a, a water delta, for example, where there may have been uh, life in the past that is now fossilized below the surface, that would be an incredible place to land. But it might not be the best place to land in terms of the energetics of actually entering, descending, and landing on the surface. This is a huge problem, actually, how you actually land on the surface of Mars. It's, we, humans, NASA have been very good at this, but nobody else has. Right? So that's, that's a, you know, it's, it's going to be one of these trade studies about where's best to land, where is the science, where are the resources. And uh, we'll do one more question. Um, I just have a lot of questions about the reactor, the crash to <laughs> gas, like... And not just because it looks like the Back to the Future 2 thing that powers the DeLorean, but it does. What's the power ratio, the energy, to get more energy out of it? It just seems insane to have to cook things to 500 Celsius. Man. It, it, you know, it's got to be valuable <laughs> I, to yeah. be able to do I'm it. I'm laughing because Annie, when I met her in her lab, she was like, no number of questions. I don't uh-huh. remember any numbers. And it's just like, seems like, like is the, pa- the power is going to dim every time you're running the generator or the reactor? So one interesting thing about, I guess, payload development in general is that when you have a system... So I had mentioned that there's a condenser that gets really cold. That it, it basically like cools the gas stream and gets the water to come out. And then we have this other area that's really hot. Um, so when you're developing any type of payload that's going to go anywhere outside of this planet, you have this really cool thing called thermal management, and you actually feed off of different systems that need heat here and need to be cold here. Um, and send radiators this way to send heat this way. So when you're when you're in the lab and you're you're developing something that's not ready to fly yet, you might it's called our TRL scale, our technology readiness level scale. So when it's a zero, it's just a concept, and when it's a nine, that's like fully uh, flying in space. And so a lot of the technologies that we're developing in the lab are around threes or fours and it's proof of concept, demonstrate in a a laboratory environment, and then the next phase is um, doing it in a... um in a relevant environment, so like a vacuum chamber that has temperature swings like Mars or a relevant environment, and that's where thermal management becomes a big, big problem. So the numbers that you're asking me for our lab stuff, I have those. We can exchange emails, and I can email you some papers because, like Brandon said, I'm I'm terrible with (laughs) memorizing things off the top of my head like that. Um, But so, yeah, in the lab, you're you're cognizant of how much energy you're using, but... um, that's something you almost deal with in the next step mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. For, for, like, for starters, you just want to prove that the technology is going to work, and then you would have a flight redesign saying, okay, we definitely wouldn't use this 
you know, power supply that we hijacked off this other project from two years ago as the power supply because it's really inefficient, but it worked to heat up this tube here. So, so like, yeah, so we have numbers and everything, but when you do a redesign, everything changes because now you're looking at mass savings, power savings, um, and thermal management. So I don't know. I didn't answer your question with numbers. <laughs> no. but so then the reactor is probably in the three or four stage that yeah. right now? Yeah, okay. because the next step would be to... Um, to demonstrate in a relevant environment, which for us would be microgravity. I would like to take a moment to thank the panel. I know you took uh, time out of your busy schedules doing awesome space stuff to come talk with me, so thank you very much for that. Nicole DeFore, she's the project manager of Veggie, Annie Meyer, a chemical engineer at the Kennedy Space Center, and the head of physics at Florida, Dan Bachelor. Thank you very much, all of you. Thank you. I'd also like to extend a very special thanks to NASA Public Affairs Officer Amanda Griffin. She unfortunately could not be here tonight. She was the one who helped book this panel. She's an avid listener and helpful contributor of the podcast. Uh, and finally, the staff at WMFE, my editor, Catherine Welsh, the station's Capcom, Jenny Babcock, and the folks in membership, Birk and Nancy Donna, Christine and Michelle, and finally, you. If it wasn't for folks like you coming out to things like this, we wouldn't have programs like this. We wouldn't have Are We There Yet? It's your passion for space exploration that drives me to keep doing what I do. So thank you all for coming out. Thanks for giving that discussion a listen. I forgot to thank one super important person at the end of that program, and that's our engineer, Mac Dula. He engineered that whole live segment, got everything set up, and we'd really be lost here at WMFE if it wasn't for Mac. So a very special thank you to Mac Dula. Well, that's going to do it for this episode, but join the conversation online. We've got a Facebook page, search for Are We There Yet Podcast, or you can take to Twitter. The show is at A-W-T-Y Mars. Get it, Are We There Yet Mars? Or reach out to me personally. I'm at Space Brendan. Support for Are We There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more space news online at WMFE.org slash space. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.